Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Good morning, friends. I'm Greg. I would, uh, I'd encourage you to consider supporting the guys going to uh, Baton Rouge. You know, a storm came, flooding happened, uh, maybe what are we, probably three, four weeks ago, you know, this wasn't something these guys planned for financially in the beginning of the year, and they just said, I'll go, and so maybe you couldn't go, but you could help them go, so would you please give that some prayer and some consideration? Um, If you want, you could also pick up some gift cards to Home Depot, um, get a $25 gift card, because they're good to give out to people as you're ministering and stuff like that, so we'll send these guys fully stocked uh, when they go. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 20 today, but I want to pray for our women's uh, retreat. Um, which will be Friday, starting on Friday, so let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to get away and to hear from you. And Father, we want to pray for this group of women that will be going away this uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning. And we do pray that it would be a really good and powerful time in each of their lives. Lord, we pray you would bless their fellowship with one another. And Lord, that your spirit would unite their hearts together as they um, go to listen Um, certainly to the speaker, Lord, to your spirit. Lord, as they interact with one another, we pray that your voice would speak through each one of them to each one of them and that you would bless, Lord, uh, this time away. We pray for their homes. Lord, we know that uh, getting away so often means we have to leave some things back at home and, Lord, the craziness of that could serve as such a distraction that Enjoying that time away, Lord, could be lost. And so we're just praying, Lord, for smooth sailing at home. No difficulties, no problems, nothing that would uh, drag the hearts or the attention of the ladies away. So, Lord, minister and bless. And, Father, as we gather now this morning, we pray, Lord, for you to minister to our hearts, that you would draw us into your presence, Lord, that your word would be real and alive. Lord, we pray that things that we have been contemplating specifically this week, Lord, by your spirit, that you would address those things this morning. Lord, that the truth of that scripture, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and able to cut down to the deepest part of our hearts, even between the bone and the marrow, Lord, that 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 would ring true this morning. And we will know that we have met with you. And so bless this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we are in Matthew 20, so you can turn there. We're going to look at a sizable portion of Scripture as the Lord allows this morning. And I'll remind you that when we closed out chapter 19 last week, we were considering this rich young ruler as we came to discover, as we put together the different pieces of the three accounts that are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we found out that this was a rich young ruler who had come to the Lord, come to Christ, and Christ responded by challenging him that he needed to lay down his last remaining idol. And the last remaining idol in this fellow's life was his riches. And we saw that the man had been trying to follow God with his life. He had been doing all sorts of things, even from when he was a young child. It seems he had been doing everything right, and yet in his heart he realized that something was still missing. And in his heart he knew that despite having done all these things, what he was missing was the assurance of eternal life. And so he came to Jesus in Matthew 19, 17, and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus then took him down sort of this trail to get the guy to come to the point where he realized for himself exactly what he needed to do. And Jesus culminated that conversation by saying to the guy, you need to sell everything you have and come follow me. Give all that to the poor and come follow, come follow me. Now that's a life-altering decision. It's a radical call to discipleship. And so it's no wonder that the guy's response was, as we saw in verse 22 of 19, was that he went away sorrowful. And I think you and I would as well. Not that we wouldn't necessarily do what Jesus asked us to do, but the reality is it would be a very difficult decision. And so the guy goes away sorrowful, the disciples take that in, and it prompts, I think that interaction prompts Peter to ask the question in verse 27, or at least to start with the statement in verse 27, where he says, look, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. And then the question, from, based on the statement is, what then will we have? Now again, if you ask me, that seems a bit forward of a question on the part of Peter. I, I really expect Jesus to respond, you'll get nothing in like it, you know, or something like that. But he doesn't. He graciously responds by acknowledging that you early disciples, you guys way back up in Galilee when nobody really knew who I was, who decided to lay down your nets and come follow me, you will receive a reward. He says to him, no sacrifice that you make here on earth or any sacrifice you make here on earth is going to pale in comparison to the reward that you will receive in the next life. But then notice how Jesus ends chapter 19. He says in verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Now, you're probably sitting here and saying, yeah, we know. You taught us this last week. Why are we doing this again? Because what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to the last words of verse 19. Then you have a parable that we're going to look at today, starting in verse 1 of chapter 20. Then look at the culmination of the parable. Look at verse 16 of chapter 20. The words are, and so the last will be first, and the first will be last. So do you see, you make the comparison. I don't know if we have both of them together. Do we have both together? Or something, poor John, he said, nobody told me. If you look at both of these together, in 1930, the last verse of chapter 19, but many who are first will be last, the last first, and then the last verse of the parable in chapter 20 is, so the last will be first and the first will be last. You see how they're, they're almost the exact same words, maybe changed around a little bit different order. So the parable is designed to explain the interaction that ends chapter 19. And so keeping that in mind, this is a response to Peter's statement and question about what about us? And so we look here, starting in verse 1, this is the parable that is commonly referred to as the workers in the vineyard or the laborers in the vineyard. It reads this way. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. And going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. 
Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Do you, did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And so the last will be the first, and the first will be the last. You have that phrase at the end that says, or do you begrudge my generosity? Some versions that you have will say something like, or do you give me the evil eye or something? So these guys were mad at this scenario, and it appeared on their face. Do you begrudge my generosity? Do you give me the evil eye? Now again, the purpose of this parable is Jesus answering Peter's question of what he and the others should get for having left all to follow him. And Jesus is going to give two answers to that question. The first one is back in chapter 19, verse 28, where he says, you will indeed be rewarded. No sacrifice you made here on the earth, any sacrifice is going to pale in comparison to the one that you will receive in heaven. That's the first answer to the question. This parable provides us with a second answer to the question. And it's to point out that yes, you will be rewarded, but the rewards that I give in heaven are different, more than likely different from the rewards that are given here on the earth. I reward on a different kind of scale of things. And so he's going to teach him that man's way of rewarding is not necessarily God's way of rewarding. And so again, the the purpose of his statement, but those who are first will be last and the last will be first. Notice that in verse 30, he begins there with the word, but he said, so you're thinking this way, you need to think a different way. And so he begins it with the word, but Now, Jesus, in response to Peter's question, is quick to point out that though Peter and all the others would be rewarded, they shouldn't be too quick to jump to the conclusion of what the reward is going to be. And then it's almost as if he anticipates somebody saying, well, that's not fair. That's immoral, the way you're handling it. It's almost as if he anticipates that. And so he says, sure, it's fair. Let me show you how it's fair. And he tells his story. Now the parable begins, obviously, in the first verse. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now a denarius was a a unit of measure, but it basically was equivalent to a day's wages. And so for our purposes, I'm just going to assume that a day's wages might be 100 bucks or something. And so this fellow here, the, the person in the parable, uh, agrees with these workers for a day's wages, 100 bucks for that. And he goes down to the town center. The, we see the story. He has a vineyard. He goes down to the town center where guys will kind of gather and just sit waiting to be hired for the day. In some places, you might go to a Lowe's. You might go to a Home Depot and there'll be a group of guys sitting out there. I noticed there was a sign up at our Home Depot that says, like, no loitering or something. I'm like, who's going to hang out at Home Depot? And the reason people hang out there is somebody will come along and say, hey, you're looking for work for the day. And you pay them 100 bucks or something, and they can work for you for that particular day. Apparently, our Home Depot doesn't allow it, but we know that others do. And so here, center of town, people are gathered. They're waiting. They're sitting, hoping to be hired for the day. 
to go into this guy's vineyard. Now, you'll notice, and we've read the story, so we'll skip ahead in our thinking a little. There's a rush to get the job done. Do you notice that? Because the scenario is likely we're talking about the grape harvest and the harvest has come in and the rains are also about to come in. Very common in that part of the world. And this time, these people would have known what Jesus was talking about. And if the torrential rains came in, the harvest would be ruined. And so you got to get it done today, basically, because the rains are coming in tomorrow. And that's probably the scenario of what we have here. And so the fellow goes down to town center. He picks up some laborers there. He gets some hired hands. Now notice two things about this. These guys are hired hands that are going to begin to work first thing in the morning. And notice also that they agree to a certain amount of money. So he goes to them and says, I'll pay you this amount. Is that good? And they're like, yeah, that's great. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. Shake hands and go on their way, begin to work. The second thing, notice is they're hired at early in the morning. It says there, early in the morning. This would be the first watch of the day. Early in the day would begin at 6 a.m. The, the phrase there, early in the morning, literally means at the dawn. And so these guys have probably woken up before the sun came up, and they went down there, and they were ready, and they looked eager. And so when the fella came in, he says, you guys want to work for the day? And they said, yes. So early in the morning, at dawn, 6 a.m., these guys agree to work for a day's wages. Verse 3 continues. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard also, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so the story continues. The guy goes down to Home Depot again, picks up some more laborers. Now there's a slight difference here. Obviously the time, three hours later. So this is 9 a.m., these are guys that roll out of bed when they can, have a cup of coffee, read the paper, and I'll get down there. And they get down to Home Depot. But notice they agree to a different pay than the first. So the first, they agree on an amount, shake hands. These guys agree on this amount. It says in verse 5 there, whatever is right, I will give you. That's their pay. Whatever is right, I will give you. And they trust that the fellow's fair. So they say, okay, sounds good. Continuing verse 5b, and going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and he found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, we'll go into the vineyard also. So now for the parable, for the purpose in the parable, for the purpose of moving along, Jesus here begins to kind of skim through the story. Same thing happens, he says there, at noon. That's the sixth hour. Same thing happens in the ninth hour, three in the afternoon. And then he throws in this little twist, and even at the eleventh hour. Now the eleventh hour, the day ends at 6 p.m., so the eleventh hour is 5 p.m. Who gets hired to work at 5 p.m.? Nobody gets hired to work at 5 p.m., but these guys have been sitting around there all day, idle, because nobody has hired them. And because of, I think that's the context of the torrential rains about to come, because that's in sort of the background, the guy says, we got to get as many grapes as we can pick before the rains come, before the day is over. And so he goes out and he gets as many more people as he can. He hires some more laborers there, even in the 11th hour, which would be around 5 p.m. And again, the price that he agreed to the guys at 9 a.m. was whatever is right. And so we know what the guys at 6 a.m. are getting. All the rest of these guys are going to get whatever is right. Now, if I ask you to sit down and, you know, jot down, hey, what do you think the guys hired at 9 should get? 
what would be right considering the other guys are getting 100 bucks and how about the guys that came at noon, the guys that came at 3, the guys that came at 5? I suspect every one of us in this room would write down a less amount for the guys that came at 5 compared to the guys that came at 6 a.m. Am I crazy? I'm not paying you more. You worked an hour. Keep that in mind. Well, evening finally arrives. It's 6 p.m. It's time for the owner to kind of settle up with his temporary employees for the day. And verse 8 says, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages. And beginning with the last, those hired at five, up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. A denarius? Get out of here. You should be amazed by that. You're not amazed by that. You should be. Now, when those hired first came, they thought, wow, they would receive more, they thought. But each of them also received a denarius. Now, you should be shocked by that. Amazed by the first one, shocked by the second one. There's an unexpected twist as Jesus conveys that when the foreman begins to pay these laborers, that he actually begins with the last of the laborers. One would have expected he would begin with the guys that got there first and are tired and are hungry and they don't feel like waiting in line any longer to get paid. Just give those guys their money and then finally the last guys will come strolling in who probably aren't even tired at all because they only worked an hour. But yet he begins with the last ones and pays them first. Now the second twist is that he would give these guys a denarius, a day's wage, even though they only worked an hour. That's the second twist here, as it says in verse, I think it's verse 8 there. And so the reason that's a twist, as you know, is because he's given them the same amount that the first group who worked all day agreed to get paid. And again, what we would have expected is if he's going to pay them, the last hour guys, 100 bucks, well then, man, these first guys that got hired, they're really in for a payday today. We would have expected the last guys would have got 10 bucks, 15 bucks, something like that. Thanks a lot for coming out. You were a real big help at the end of the day. Here's a little bit of money. And so surely when these guys are given a crisp $100 bill for their days or for their hours labors, you can imagine the surprise of receiving that. And I think you can imagine the surprise of the guys at the end of the line who are expecting to get a big payday. If, this guy got, if these guys got 100 bucks for working one hour, we might get 1000 bucks because we work 12 hours. This is going to be great. I can't wait to get up there. And so they finally get up there. Notice Jesus makes it clear that that's what they're thinking, that we're going to get 1000 bucks, even though we agreed to 100 because it says in verse 10, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more than the 100 or than the 11th hour workers, but each of them also received a denarius. Now, of course, you know that their response is something like this. Hey, what's up with that? I worked 12 full hours, and this guy only worked an hour. Why do they get the same amount? That's from the GDV, which is the Greg Downs version of our Bibles. <laughs> Jesus says it probably more eloquently. He says, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying these last worked only an hour, and we worked the entire day. Now, despite the fact that the landowner gave them exactly what he said that he would give them, seeing that he gave the same amount to those that worked less caused them, as it says there, to grumble. 
And now the master replies, it says he replied to one of them, and I, I like this, Jesus speaks like I do. He said, friend, I say friend a lot, people make fun of me, I like the phrase, friend. He said, friend, I'm just trying to be like Jesus, everybody. He said, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I chose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Look, there's three questions there. He says, did you not agree with me for a denarius? And if he waited for their response, they would say yes. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And if he waited for the answer, they would have said yes. And he says, do you begrudge my generosity? And if he waited for the answer, they would say, yes. Yes, we do. They insinuate that this vineyard owner here is being unfair, when the reality is he's being completely fair. I will give you a day's wage. I gave you a day's wage. There's no unfairness in that at all. It's being completely fair. You agreed to that, and that's what I gave you. So their problem is not that he's being unfair. Their problem is that he's being generous. And more specifically, their problem is that he's being generous with somebody else. Now, if he would have said to them, hey, you know what, guys, I agreed to give you 100 but I'm in a good mood today. Here's $1,000. And he showed them generosity. Do you think they would have a problem with that? Not at all. They have a problem with his generosity because it's being given towards somebody else, and they don't think that that is fair. That's the crux of their anger. Not that he's being unfair, but that he's being generous with someone they feel doesn't deserve the generosity like they do. Now, with that, the story comes to an end. But Jesus adds now, it's outside of the story, he adds the point of the story in verse 16, and he says this, and so the last will be first, and the first will be last. Some have worded it this way, and I think it really kind of nails down the idea, and the wording is, so the last will be as the first, and the first will be as the last. That's what's happening. The same thing that the first got, the last got. The same thing the last got, the first got. And again, notice how similar that is to chapter 1930, where it says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. There's a reason that this parable is sandwiched between those two verses there that are so similar to, to one another. It's given for the purpose to communicate that the first will be as the last and the last will be as the first. And the reason is, is because the wage for their day of labor was determined by God's grace and by God's generosity. When man is rewarded and blessed, he has done so because of God's grace and generosity, period. The follower of Christ in this story depicted as the laborer in the vineyard does not receive what he deserves. It's according to the law that we receive things, uh, we receive what we deserve. But it's according to grace that we receive what we don't deserve. No one deserves to go to heaven. Nobody deserves to go to heaven. I remember I was in the, the teacher's eating room. They call those things lunch room, something like that, uh, for the t faculty room. I was in the faculty room eating with a group of teachers, and I, it was just two of us, really, and, but somebody was sitting off on the side behind, like, this partition. She was, like, secret back there, and I didn't necessarily know. So I'm talking to this particular one guy, and we got talking about Gandhi because we're history teachers, and, you know, 
you have to be smart and talk about things like that. And so we're talking about Gandhi, and I, I said to him, you know, it's remarkable to me because Gandhi, you know, on all, just on the surface, remarkable guy. I don't understand how the guy could live the way that he lived without the Holy Spirit in him. And the guy said, yep, there's probably a special place in heaven for Gandhi. I said, I don't think so. And I explained why, the gospel, Jesus Christ, and all this sort of stuff. Well, this lady across the hall, you must have thought I said, let's go out and kill kittens or something. She rose up. She said, oh, my God, how could you say that? And she was my boss. I, I, I was like. <laughs> and so, it, your real quick decision, do I, do I get fired today or, you know, do I go for it or whatever? And so, you know, I just shared essentially what the gospel teaches uh, with this lady here. Nobody deserves to go to heaven. What we deserve is the penalty of our sin, which Romans 6 says is death and separation from God. Now, you might hear this and you say, well, wait a minute. In this story, these guys worked all day. Their wage is what they deserved. And to that, I would say to you, this response, they were fortunate to work at all. These guys didn't have a job when they woke up that particular morning and they went down there and they were fortunate to work at all. They could have just spent the entire day sitting at Home Depot and nobody bring them in to work in their particular vineyard. This uh, parable is about salvation. And heaven is the gift of God's grace. That's the reward. It's not for the magnitude of our labor or for the scope of of our labor, but simply because he has chosen to bestow his grace and his generosity on our lives. Now, does the Bible teach that there are rewards in heaven? It does. That's not the purpose of this particular parable. This parable is talking about getting to heaven. The Bible makes it very, very clear it's not a result of the works that we do, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. Are there rewards in heaven after you're already there, so to speak? You've already gotten into heaven because of the work of Jesus Christ? The Bible makes clear that there are. But that's not the purpose of this particular parable. The purpose of this parable is to deal specifically with the grace of God in inviting us into his kingdom. And the point is, whether you were one of Jesus' first disciples that left all to go and follow him, or you joined in the day's labor sometime in the middle of the day or even in the late afternoon of the day, the point is this, that the reward for all of the laborers will be the same, which is heaven. Now, I think there's, there's certainly application of this parable beyond Peter's specific question. Application for our lives and the lives of God's children throughout the era of church history. So, for instance, this would, be, this would have been a very effective parable to share with the Judaizers of the first century. The Judaizers were those that were Jews who came to faith in Jesus Christ and believed that that was sort of the path that everybody had to follow. If you want to come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have to become a Jew first uh, and so on. There was this sense of, yes, Jesus can reach outside to Gentiles or whatever, but we're Jews and we're better and something. So this would have been an effective parable to share with them that has nothing to do with your background or your works or anything like that, but it has to do with God's grace because no one is worthy of God's grace. If there was people worthy of God's grace, it wouldn't be grace anymore. No one is worthy of God's grace. So it's certainly applicable there. I think it's applicable in our lives as well. Maybe you've been a believer for quite a number of years and some young whippersnapper. You've heard that phrase there, whippersnapper? 
My children use it all the time around the house. Whippersnapper. I'm kidding. But some young person comes along and God begins to bless that young person. And you've been in the faith for a long time. You might begin thinking like, Lord, that's not fair. That's not fair. I've been getting up every day reading my Bible for so many years. How come you're blessing them? Surely I'm more deserving of God's grace than this young whippersnapper. And once again, grace is not tied to what we deserve. The law is tied to what we deserve. You see, I think Christians have a problem with grace. And the problem is this. We love receiving it as it pertains to our sin, but we want to ignore it when it comes to our labor because we begin to think, I deserve better. God, I've been serving you in so many ways over all of these years. Why is this happening to me? I deserve better. You need to be careful with that line of thinking because if you want to get into, God, you have to give me what I deserve, you know what you deserve from God, don't you? You deserve death and separation from him. I think another thing we need to be careful that this passage speaks to is letting jealousy set into our heart. Because what jealousy does is it robs us of joy and it steals away gratitude. And any gratitude that you once may have enjoyed, jealousy steals that away. And these guys are demonstrating that. Another thought that strikes me as I read this parable is this. It's never too late to get started. It's never too late to get started. Perhaps you look at your life and maybe you're in the quitting hour of life. You know how it works. It's getting close to quitting hour. You know, so it's about 4.30 and you're thinking, I'm not going to start a new job. I'll just try to look busy for the last half hour, you know, but I'm not going to start anything new because I won't get it done anyway here. But perhaps you're looking at your life and you're beginning to think that you're in the quitting hour of life and thinking things like, why bother getting started? The day is almost over. This parable should speak to you that it's never too late to get started. And so whether you're 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or even beyond that, 70s or into your 80s, it's never too late to get started walking with the Lord and serving the Lord. And let that speak to you, depending on where you are in your life. I remember when I was about 35 years old, I had thought the Lord might be doing some things earlier in my life, and those things didn't happen. And now I'm hitting about 35 years old. Not now, obviously, say look, you know, or whatever. But as I was hitting about 35 years of age, I was thinking, Lord, what are you doing? I'm running out of time here, Lord. And I, I was riding with Robin and Kevin Barber. We were going somewhere, flying away somewhere. And as we were, it just hit me in the front seat of their car that life is long. It hit me. And that even if today I started doing what I sensed God was calling me to do, I could likely do that another 40 years of my life or beyond. Life is long. And so let that speak to your heart here. If you have not begun serving the Lord and you think, well, I'm too old now to start serving the Lord, or you're not even a believer yet, and you're hearing these things and you're thinking, you know, about these things, and you say, well, you know what? Here I am in my 50s, my 60s. You know, I'm just too far gone. You're not. You come in at the 11th hour, the reward is the same, which is heaven. And we rejoice in that truth. Amen, friends? All right, let's go on to verse 17. Think about that while I take a water. It says, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over 
to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. We've heard this phrase, this explanation, this is the third time now in uh, the last three or four chapters. So back in 1621, back in 1712, and now here in 20 verses 17 through 19, Jesus, in no uncertain terms, makes it clear to his disciples what's about to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. And notice, again, he will be delivered over to the authorities, he will be condemned to death, he will be crucified, and he'll be raised again on the third day. We read earlier, and you can skim over and look, in chapter 19.1, this was the reason that he had left Galilee. This was the reason he was on this particular journey of these last couple of chapters, so that he could go to Jerusalem and encounter these things that were before him. Even more than that, this was the reason, going to Jerusalem, this was the reason he left heaven. We read back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, that Mary would bear a son, and his name would be Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. And that would take place in Jerusalem. So everything about his earthly life was for these events that were about to unfold there in Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem to save his people from their sin. Again, I've said it a lot of times here. It's kind of a broken record, but it's true. And so you just say it again and again. The cross was no accident in the life of Christ. The cross was the reason that Jesus came. And so here he reminds them again, he informs them again, certainly heavy words. And so it's so curious that the very next set of words into the the silence there, if you will, are recorded for us. Now it's not here in Matthew, but Luke adds this, that they understood none of these things. They understood none of these things. And so Jesus is talking about his death that he's going to be flogged. You know what flogging is? It's a horrible, cruel means of torture, really. It was designed to weaken the human body so they would die quicker on the cross. And so here you have uh, Jesus talking about that he's going to be betrayed, arrested, flogged, mocked, crucified, and so on. And we learn in Luke chapter 18 that they don't understand this, and we know that they don't understand this because the next interaction here found in the Matthew passage It's so strange in the context of what's happening. You have it, I'll read it to you. It starts in verse 20. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able, he says to the men, to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, we are able. And he said, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now Jesus just said that he would be mocked, that he would be flogged, and that he would be crucified. And essentially this lady is saying, ooh, that sounds bad. 
Anyway, could I ask a question or something like that? That's really what is going on here. The sons of Zebedee, I should say, Zebedee is the man, the, the husband of the wife. These sons of Zebedee and their mother are given a hard time by a lot for even considering this request. We look at this and think, oh my gosh, the nerve. What kind of timing is that? And, and, and things like that. The reality is, every one of the disciples that were there was thinking the same thing, but just didn't have the courage of saying it. So if you look down to verse 24, we read there, it says, when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. And it will go on, and by Jesus' explanation, it will go on to make clear they were indignant because they were thinking, you, you two sit, no, 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 me, I sit at the right hand, I sit at the left hand. If anyone's going to sit there, it's going to be me. Now, this passage kind of implies that it's the mom who's sort of involved here. And moms love their kids, and they want the best for their kids and all of that. And I'm grateful for that, certainly so, in my life. Uh, my mom just always, she just, I'm pretty sure my mom thinks I was the greatest, or at least one of the three greatest on earth, because uh, we have a few others. And moms tend to think that way. The Mark passage tells us that the sons of Zebedee are just as much involved as mom is. So you think of mom kind of dragging them up there and, you know, and they're embarrassed, mom, would you stop, or whatever. But the reality is, Mark tells us, and James, the son, and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, notice this, this is in, these guys. He says, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Isn't that rude? You know, can you imagine? So they come up, and he says something, oh, what do you want me to do? And then she jumps in, I want my two boys, right hand and left hand, when you come into your kingdom. And again, the context is just moments before he's talking about his death. Again, talk about insensitivity to the timing of things. But Jesus responds very graciously. In verse 21, he says, what do you want me to do for you? And what do you want? And her response is something to the effect of not much, just that my two sons could be vice messiahs, you know, when you come in to your kingdom. And unknowingly, I think she's uttering a prophetic statement without even realizing that she is doing so when she talks about being on Jesus' right hand and on Jesus' left hand. And the reason is, is because we know that in just about a month's time, Jesus is going to be lifted up on a cross with one on his right hand and one on his left hand. The cross is Jesus' throne in so many ways because that's where he conquered sin and death on the cross. And so there would be one on his right hand and there would be one on his left hand. Now, of course, the James and John's mother has no idea what Jesus has in mind here, something completely differently because what mom would petition that their son be crucified? And so she has no idea here. And Jesus certainly knows this. He says to her in verse 22, you do not know what you are asking, he says to her. Now he turns to the boys, who are men, and he says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And Jesus will refer to the cup that he is to drink even at the Last Supper, where he gives them the cup of fellowship. And then in the garden a little bit later, he prays, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup. The cup is his crucifixion. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they say, sure, no problem. We could drink the cup that you're going to drink. And clearly, like their mom, they have no idea what Jesus is really speaking of. And it's clear they've locked in to some throne somewhere. 
that they could be seated beside. They've locked in to some earthly position of authority. They haven't locked into the, cru- the cup of crucifixion or even just the cup of martyrdom or persecution. There would come a time where they would be prepared to drink that cup, but they weren't yet. Somebody has said this of these two brothers, that James died a martyr's death and John lived a martyr's life. James would go on to be martyred for his faith. Um, we, we learned, it's not, it's not in the Bible, but we learned this, that he was uh, tied behind a horse and dragged through the streets of Jerusalem uh, with his head banging on the ground until he eventually died. John, we know, things of John, John never uh, had his life taken from him but he was cast off to the island of Patmos. We know, we, we learn not from the scriptures, but we learn from history. Fox's Book of Martyrs is really hard to read, um, but you should try. Um, it's a good, it was written in like the 1600s. That's why it's hard to read. But it speaks of John as having been boiled in oil and things like that, but he wouldn't die uh, and so on. Um, but nonetheless, he would live out his days. And so James, his brother, died a martyr's death. John lived a martyr's life. They would one day be prepared to drink the cup that Jesus would have to drink, but they weren't yet prepared for that. Despite the fact that they had been with Jesus for three and a half years, they weren't there yet. They would need the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit had not yet been given to them, but when he would be given to them, he would do some work in each of these guys, and there would come a time where they would truly be ready to drink this cup that Jesus would drink. And so notice Jesus says to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. That's not mine to give, Jesus says. Now one would think if anybody had the authority to throw around a little political patronage, that it would be Jesus. But notice Jesus remarkably demonstrates the humility that marked his character when he left his place in heaven to come here on this earth on your behalf. And so in that humility, he says, look, these things are not mine to give because he had submitted himself to the will of his Father. So it says in verse 23, it's for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now the rest of the disciples, as I've already mentioned, are really angered by this. The passage says that they are indignant. And again, they're primarily angered because the brothers beat them to the punch. That's why they're angered. They're probably thinking to themselves, look, we knew it wasn't a right time to ask the question, and we have a little couth, but you jumped in there. You asked the question that we wanted to ask. We've been thinking it. You and your mom went and asked us. I I also think there's a sense of you. What makes you guys think you should be number one and two? I should be number one or number two. And we know that's the cause of their anger because Jesus addresses it in verse 25. So let's read 25 to 28. It says, Jesus called to them and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the disciples jockeying for position, it provides a valuable opportunity for Jesus to address what's going on within each of their hearts. That there's a desire for power and authority and prestige. There's a desire for power, authority, and prestige. And what is that doing? 
or threatening to do at least, it's threatening to tear apart the unity of this group. Power, the desire for power, authority, and prestige. And so Jesus knows nothing good's going to come from that, so he addresses it. And he says now to these would-be rulers over God's people, he compares the way that the rulers of the Gentiles rule. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over the people that they rule, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. Now, he says the rulers of the Gentiles. Gentiles really just became a generic term for those that don't know God. There were the Jews to whom God had revealed himself, and there were the Gentiles, those that had, did not know God. And he says the rulers of the Gentiles rule over their subjects. In the United States, we don't use the term subjects to describe each of us. We consider ourselves citizens, not subjects. But the rulers of the Gentiles ruled over their subjects for their own benefit. Not the subject's benefit, but their own benefit as the ruler. Not in such a way that the people or the society would be better off by their rulership, but that they, the rulers, might benefit. And if the people don't capitulate to their rule, the ruler of the, rule of the Gentiles, then they will make them capitulate to their rule. That's the meaning of the phrase there where it says exercise authority over. It is a term, it's a different term than you're in charge of or something like that. It's a term which means to force someone to be under another's power and dominion or to subdue a person. And so if you won't follow my lead, I will make you follow my lead. The rulers of the Gentiles rule in such a way. They exercise power for their own benefit and they use great force to either attain power or to maintain power. And Jesus says, it shall not be that way uh, or it shall not be so among you. And then he adds this phrase, ruling in the kingdom, which is what these guys want to do, sit me on a throne left and right. Ruling in the kingdom, he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And clearly the disciples did not understand this type of leadership that Jesus came to instill and this type of leadership that Jesus had modeled. Nothing about Jesus' life and ministry was about him lording his authority over others or forcing others to submit to him or benefiting off of them in some way. Rather, his leadership was entirely about others and about serving others. And, and I know I quote this passage a lot, but it fits here so perfectly, so I want to quote it again. It's from Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes to the, the believers there in Philippi. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Now the context of Philippians chapter 2 goes back to verse 3 of the chapter. And it says this, Paul is writing to the Philippians. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. And then he goes on to give Jesus as an example of that truth from verse 3. It's too bad the disciples here in Matthew 20 didn't have Paul's writing that they could think of from Philippians chapter 2. 
while they are arguing amongst themselves which of them was the greatest and which of them should be seated on Jesus' left and right. And of course, they didn't have Paul's writings. Paul wasn't even a believer yet. So of course, they didn't have Paul's writings, but they did have Jesus' teaching, and most definitely, they had his example, and yet, they missed it. And I think too often, as believers, we miss it as well. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, Jesus says you must become like a servant or a slave. And that's the example that Jesus set. He even tells them here, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Now, none of them sitting there could have said, that's not true. We've seen plenty of examples, Jesus, where you weren't serving others. None of them could refute him because it was just truth. The example that he had established and set was not that he came to be served, but to serve others, and ultimately in service of others to give his life as a ransom. And that's the example that you and I are to model as well. Jesus did not serve for what he could get from his service. And many people do, even in the church. For Jesus, it wasn't about making a name for himself. And many servants in the church, it is. It wasn't about how good it caused him to feel. I just love going to serve. I feel so good about myself. That was not his motivation that he would feel good about himself or people would say good things about him or anything like that. It wasn't about him attaining a particular position or status for himself. Jesus served, and it was entirely about what he could do for others. That he left his place in eternity, he laid aside so many of the attributes of his deity that he might become a sacrifice on our behalf. That he came to this earth, as he says here in this passage, to give his life as a ransom for many. A slave or a servant doesn't expect anything for their service. They are simply just doing what they are supposed to be doing. And there is no thought to what throne they were going to sit on or to what position they were going to attain. Because they're a servant. Because they're a slave. And those things don't even enter into their thinking. Now each of us are in some way people in position of authority. Perhaps you have some position of authority at a church or something like that, but the reality is all of us in some way are in positions of authority. And we are by nature of the way things work in the kingdom of God. If we're children of God, then we are to be servants to those that we have been placed in authority over. Parents, you've been placed in authority over your children for a period of time. And you've been placed in authority over your children for their benefit. I've seen lots of parents who are like, great, now I got someone to mow the lawn. Now I got somebody that'll do the dishes. Now I got somebody. And I think we should have our kids doing those things because they're learning and all that kind of stuff. But your kids aren't your slaves. You're to be serving them. That's what leadership means. Employees, or employers I mean, managers, business owners, You've been placed in authority in those positions over your employees for their benefit. I'm getting all Bernie Sanders now. For their benefit, you were placed in authority over uh, those individuals. Older brothers and sisters, looking after younger brothers and sisters. When mom or dad leaves you with the kids and says you're in charge, you've been placed in charge for the benefit of your younger brother or sister. Can I get an amen? 
<laughs> no amen? In every instance there where you have some position of authority over someone else, your responsibility is to minister. And that the same word means serve. Your responsibility is to serve those that have been placed in your care. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. They're secular examples that you've given us. I understand what you're saying as it pertains to the church. And not everybody understands that, but you do because you're smart people. You say, I understand what you're talking about as it pertains to the church, but secular is different. Authority is different. And my answer to you would be this, according to whom? That's a question, really. According to whom is it different? Was that Jesus' example? To serve at the synagogue and to sit around and be weighted hand and foot at home by his mom or by others or his younger brothers and sisters? And I wrote this down here. Come on, who are you trying to fool? Is what I put here. Who are you trying to fool? These principles of leadership, if you're a follower of Christ, are for you to apply in every single avenue of life. And you know, as I think about that, imagine the transformation of our society if leaders actually led in these ways. You know what I suspect? I suspect a whole lot of people would no longer be interested in becoming a leader. I don't want to be president. I don't want to be a congressman. I don't want to be the town mayor or whatever if it means I got to do those things and serve everybody else. Imagine the impact on our homes if we led this way. Our places of business and again in our governments. If we led in such a way that inspired people to follow us instead of compelled them to follow us and did things for the benefit of those followers and not for ourselves. I think it would be a pleasant place indeed to live. And so the question then for you is, are you leading? Are you serving in such a way? You say, I sure am. Well, hold on a second. I have to make you feel bad as we end here. So hold on one second. And don't answer the question too quickly. Let me ask the question in a different way. So I said, are you ready to serve in such a way? You said, yeah. Well, let me ask it this way. How do you feel when people treat you like a servant? You like it? don't like it, do you? How do you feel when people treat you and respond to you like you are their slave? Well, your response to that gives a good indicator of how you're serving. If the response was to treat you as such, you'd more than likely just say, hey, I'm just a lowly servant. Now, again, if your kids treat you that way or other people, there are boundaries and things like that. I'm just talking about the mindset of what is going on inside of you because the answer to that question is the best indicator, I think, of how you are leading and the attitude of your heart. And so as we began today, or I don't know if we began it, but it popped up on the screen here, what sort of leader do you want to be? And the things that Jesus is communicating apply not just to kind of religious leadership, but to every area of our lives. And I'd encourage you, fix your eyes on Christ. Memorize Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, which talks about this attitude should be in you that was the same that it was in Christ Jesus, who though being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but laid down his life, even to the point of death on a cross. Amen, friends? Amen. Father, we thank you for that exhortation. Lord, uh, no doubt that is a challenge uh, to each of us here, even if it's a lesson that we have learned in the past, it's one that we might stray away from and, and tend to forget and get distracted. And so we're thankful again for the reminder. Lord, we pray that as your children, we would be a different sort of parent 
than those that are in the world, the Gentiles, so to speak. Lord, that we would be in a, dis- a different sort of employer or manager at our place of business. Certainly that we would be a different sort of pastor or ministry leader in a church. Lord, that we would be so much more like your son. Leading in such a way that people are inspired to follow and leading in such a way that our leadership is for the benefit of those we've been called to guide and to direct. And so, Father, we ask these things. We believe they're according to your will. I pray you would minister to our hearts and challenge us, Lord, as we consider as we go from here. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.